Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> uh, it's real. It's us. It's bad. It's going to get worse. There's hope if we act now. So, uh, it's real. It's not fake. It's real. It's us. It's not other things. It's humans. It's bad. It is definitely bad, but it's going to get worse. Hey, welcome back, Faithful Politics listeners and viewers. If you are watching us on our YouTube channel, I am your political host, Will Wright, and I'm joined by your faithful host, Josh Bertram. How's it going, Josh? Good. Hello, hello. <laughs> Good. And uh, and we're, we're joined this week by uh, Rick Landroth. Oh, did I say your name? Is that the right, yes. right pronoun? Lind- Lindroth. Lindroth. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's all right. That's right. It's, been, uh, it's happened before. Okay, good, good, good. So, oh, or not good. I suppose I shouldn't be like cheering on people mispronouncing your name, but, um, but, but Rick is a distinguished professor of ecology at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Um, during 2010 or between 2010 to 2016, he also served as an associate dean for research at uh, UW Madison. He is a Fulbright fellow and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Much of his research has focused on the impacts of climate change on forest ecosystems. But recently, Rick was the subject of a Washington Post article that focused on the importance of faith and combating hopelessness when dealing with climate change. And we are happy to have you on, Rick. Thank you for being here. Well, yes, thanks thank so, so much, much for the invitation. It's Joy to be here. Yeah, you, you know, I, I learned I learned a new word actually um, just this morning that I wanted to, to try out on you, um, and uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce this as well. But okay. would you would you consider yourself a a nemophilist? Have you heard that term before? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're going to have to uh, explain that one to it's, me. It's a it's a person who loves or is fond of woods or forests. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to have to add that one to my That's good. biography. That one, That's messed huh? up. You're testing us. Yeah, it was uh, It was one of the like random words I get sent to me every single day from like dictionary, whatever. So I just thought, oh, this is this is fitting. It's like Perfect. the 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 clouds and the universe has heard, um, you know, what we're doing today and wanted to kind of give me something that I can bring to the conversation. Um, so uh, so that's it. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for okay. tuning in. And um, yeah, yeah, we're done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but 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 Rick. Um, yeah. T- so tell us a little bit more kind of about, about your work and w- what it is that, that you do at the, uh, the University of Wisconsin. Right. So I grew up as a free range kid. So basically <laughs> I lived in the country and as long as we were home for some supper and bedtime, uh, otherwise we just had free range of the universe around us. And so uh, I had a close connection with nature from the beginning and mm. knew by the time I was seven that I wanted to be a biologist. And that's actually what I became. Um, graduate school in ecology at the University of Illinois, and then have been at the University of Wisconsin for my whole professional career. And my research group does research on global change ecology, forest ecology, uh, plant uh, herbivore interactions, chemical ecology, kind of a range of things. But our global change research has been a, a major component of our my program since like 1990. Well, wow. uh, so so, That's cool. uh, so one of the reasons that that I that the Washington Post did an article on you um, was because you were you were making a commentary about people of faith and sort of like the the environment. Um, so I was wondering if maybe you can kind of just summarize um, sort of the, the the focus, and then maybe you can elaborate more on sort of your faith and how that how that kind of fits into sort of the broader uh, climate conversation. Sure. So that's a, that's a really complex topic, subject. Um, you know, uh, as people of faith, there are many reasons to believe that we should be at the forefront of caring for the environment around us. And yet, uh, in many regards, we're bringing up the rear, if not inhibiting uh, such uh, efforts. And so it's it's really a significant challenge. Now, of course, that's a subset of of you know, people of faith across the world, but it's uh, an important subset. 
So in my own faith tradition, I grew up attending a Lutheran church, and then um, my wife and I have been attending um, uh, various non-aligned churches. We currently attend a church that's part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. It's kind of the, the, the offspring of the Swedish Free Church many years ago. And uh, I've been involved in that church for 20 Twenty some years here, twenty five years. Actually, take that, take that back. Thirty five years now, right? Got it, uh, Josh. Did, did did you have a question? Yeah, sorry about that. I got I got <laughs> caught up. I was looking up Evangelical Free Church of America because <laughs> I wanted to look at uh, some of their theology, and then I was like, oh yeah, I got to ask a question. So <laughs> no worries, man. So that, that's so interesting, Rick. I always, whenever I meet a scientist who's a Christian, it's always intriguing to me. I love science. My wife loves science. Actually, right now she's um, uh, actually working on uh, becoming potentially licensed to teach science in the uh, state Excellent. of Virginia in the high school level. So she is um, studying for her praxis and um, and, and a couple different uh, subjects. So it's it's really cool. And we just love science. But there always seems like there's some kind of tension, you know, mm-hmm. between faith and faith and science, which I, I, I personally think is much more uh, propaganda than it is reality. But at the same time, I'd love to hear your sense of like, how have you how has your faith interacted with the way in which you do? your scientific work and do you feel like say you can come to the issue of climate change your expertise um among others you could come to that issue with new with the proper amount of objectivity and neutrality given your faith because i'm sure there are some people that would might question that which i think is unfair but what, what do you think right well there's a lot to a lot to unpack there so some of your early comments about this conflict between faith and science. I, you know, years ago, we'd say that's a trope. Now we'd say that's a meme, right? You know, it's, it's got <laughs> yeah. a lot more, a lot more play, a uh, lot wider perception that it's true than what the science is indicated. Um, work by professor Eklund and others has shown that actually many, many scientists like up to half have some faith, perspectives. Uh, and so, you know, that there's th- this perspective that there's this clash between science and faith is, is not, doesn't really stand up to the tests of, of science of sociology. Wow. Um, that's, a, that's really a, a bigger perspective here in the United States than, than it is elsewhere in the world. Um, but yeah, there are some issues uh, for sure. And being a person of faith in a world of science, uh, you know, you, the adage is if you try to build a bridge between two communities, you'll get stepped on from both sides. And and that can happen a bit, but I've actually found hmm. within my own professional career, and among, among my colleagues here at the University of Wisconsin, they may think that faith is antiquated or curious or out of date, but I've rarely, rarely met any kind of serious objection. In fact, I, I've said elsewhere, uh, I've been quoted elsewhere as saying I've I've encountered more dismissiveness and pushback as a person, as a scientist in a community of faith than I have as a person of faith in a community of scientists. So that's, that's really wow. where, the, the, where the real challenge lies. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of crossover. I'm, I'm frequently asked, how does my faith influence my science? Just as you did, Josh, rarely, rarely am I asked, how does my science influence my faith? And it cuts both ways. Right. Yes, it does. Both Absolutely. Ways. So, you know, uh, as people of faith, one of the things that should mark us is, is we are pursuing truth. And it doesn't matter where the truth takes us. If we are committed to truth, that's how I approach my science as well. And my science yes. uh, informs how I do that with my faith. I don't care where the truth takes me with respect to my faith. I'm doggedly going to pursue it. And then uh, somewhat um, reciprocally, there is this perspective of humility, as a person of faith, I'm humble about the world. I'm humble about my role in the world, my capacity to understand the world. I take that into my science as well. But also my science tells me that 
because of the way I do science and the way most people do science, you're bumping up against the limits of what we know every day. Not only of what I know, but of what anybody knows. And I'm comfortable carrying around in my head multiple conflicting perspectives without demanding resolution. And that's <laughs> somewhat rare within the community of faith. I don't have to have everything figured out. I'm actually quite comfortable with carrying around conflicting opinions and, in my head. And that's more of a principle, you would say, maybe of science even. Exactly. Than of, yes. Than of faith. Right. Right. So, so how that, does this, how yeah, does this approach my, my uh, climate change science? Um, yeah, there are a number of ways. I think, first of all, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very discouraging area of science to work in for, for many reasons. Uh, my faith perspectives help me to understand and not be surprised by the greed, the self-centeredness, the, the lust for power, uh, the willful, ig willful ignorance that I see in the world around me. And I kind of expect that from people. That sounds awful, but you know, that's, you know, if we are fallen people, that's, that's what you wow. expect. So I'm not surprised by that. But then I think my faith also helps me to sustain some level of hope, even in the darkest days of, of, of despair. And I know that the work I do, I feel is a moral calling, but that calling is not to be successful. It's simply to be faithful. And so if I can do the work that I feel I'm being called to do, do it well to the best of my ability, then I'm not really responsible for the results and, and changing the world. I just do what I can to the best of my capacity. That's great, man. I love that answer. I, you know, I, I was, um, as you're talking, I, I, I was thinking about several things came out to me as you were speaking that made me, um, that were surprising that caught my attention. Okay. But one in particular was when you, uh, said that it's tougher. You face more controversy and conflict being a scientist in the community of faith mm -hmm. than being a faithful person person of faith in, in a community of scientists. Can you expound on that a little bit? What, what, what were you imagining when you're saying that? What's yeah. Going on there? Uh, so, okay. I'm, I'm known as the science guy, as the climate change guy, as the eco guy among my, uh, my colleagues, friends in my community of faith. And most of them are, are good friends. They're very respectful. My church is respectful. My church embraces science. We have a, used to have a, a science symposium for a whole day where we went right at the big issues of, you know, like evolution and climate change and medical ethics. And we featured prominent faculty who are professors and experts in these. Wow. So, that's so, a great idea. Oh, it's, yeah. It's just you just gave tremendous. me a great idea. Okay. Hey, uh, seriously, get back a hold of me and we can talk about that. Uh, it's had a huge impact. We draw from 700 people from Southern Wisconsin and, and just, it's great. Great. Really? Yeah. I will connect with you. I'd love to hear how you do that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So, but, um, you know, uh, occasionally I'll get, uh, cat calls from the audience when I talk about, uh, uh, not cat calls, but, but, uh, you know, uh, derisive, <laughs> yeah, not cat calls, uh, derisive, uh, you know, shout outs from the audience when I'm talking, um, one of the evaluations one year I, I presented on climate change and people give, you know, their evaluations at the end and they're anonymous, of course. And one time on one evaluation basically challenged the legitimacy of my Christian faith because of what I think about climate change. Wow. And another one, another one was an offer of marriage. So, you know, it runs the entire gamut uh, between those two. That was a cat call. Yeah, uh, you're right. And then, uh, you know, like one time I introduced a very well-known climate uh, scientist before a public audience here in Madison and talked about some of my own perspectives. And afterwards, a person from the faith community in Madison approached me and shoved a bunch of papers in my face and, and said, you need to read these about climate change. It's bogus. If you, and this was back probably early 2000 teens. He said, if wow. you believe in climate change, then you probably voted for Obama. And if you voted for Obama, you can't be a Christian. So, no you know, way. that's, that's the, yeah, that's actually what happened. So, so that, you know, you ask for, okay, examples or, or, um, you know, why I think that I, I get more resistance in the world of faith. Yeah. And yeah, those are some of the reasons, <laughs> you know, uh, I can relate. So I, I voted for Obama, um, and I was told that I, I wouldn't be saved because I was a Democrat 
and uh, not just and, once, but twice he voted for Obama. Yeah. So so oh, so it's, oh my god. So, so I mean, that's, it's, like, it's like a circle of hell, like like made for <laughs> special yeah. place for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah special place. I mean, I, I, I'm one to just kick the doors of hell wide open and just be like, yeah. I'm here, you know, I'm a Democrat, do with me as you see fit. Um, but, but you know, it, it it wasn't as worse as, like, someone telling me because I was wearing a hat in church that, I mean, you know, I wouldn't get to heaven either. But, right. Um, right. you know, that that's that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> but um, yeah. but what, what I what I, I, I do want to level set a little bit um, and talk kind of like, what is the state of our climate and, and, and maybe just, just so, so we can get the terms correct. You know, some call it climate change, some call it global warming, you know, what's, what's sort of like the actual name of, of the change in the climate. Right. Right. So we'll start there and then, then work backwards. Um, used to be called, called global warming. Uh, now, more generally, it's known as climate change because we know that the warming is doing much more than simply warming. There are all kinds of, of correlate, correlated uh, impacts. Hmm. And so climate change is the better, the more appropriate term. So, yes, the earth is warming. But, you Less know, divisive it, term, too. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Um, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, the earth is warming. It's going to warm a few degrees. But if that's all that happened. If that was all that happened, you know, that's not really a problem. It's mm-hmm. all of the related consequences. And so because of that very marginal warming, we're seeing a major amplification uh, and increase in frequency of crazy weather events, storms, droughts, floods, massive wildfires. We're seeing sea level rise. We're seeing, you know, changes in our um, seasons rapid loss of glaciers, and we're seeing all kinds of effects. And so those would go kind of loosely under the rubric of climate change because they they address all components of climate, which is not only temperature, but it's humidity, precipitation, the frequency and distribution of those events, et cetera. So it's more holistic than simply saying global warming. Mm, got it. And, and, and you're going to address sort of like, well, what's the state of the union for our, for our climate? Yeah. So, you know, the, okay, I've, I've used this before. Uh, other scientists have used it. I can explain the whole kind of perspective on climate change in 17 words. So here we go. <laughs> and then we can pick them apart. Okay. Uh, it's real. It's us. It's bad. It's going to get worse. There's hope if we act now. So uh, it's real. It's not fake. It's real. It's us. It's not other things. It's humans. It's bad. It is definitely bad, but it's going to get worse. And there's something we can do about it. We can fix it if we were to act aggressively now. So, uh, you know, the concept of global warming or climate change is controversial in many, many arenas. I mean, it's controversial in the world of commerce, certainly in the world of politics, in the world of faith. Uh, The one arena in which there is no debate whatsoever about the reality of climate change and that it is human caused is the world of science. So, uh, you know, I'm happy to talk about the science. Uh, I I can't really address. uh, I'm not an expert in economics or in (laughs) philosophy or commerce, but in the world of science, there is no there is no legitimate legitimate debate that it is real, that it's serious and that it's human caused. So that's the status it's very serious, uh, and the trajectory we we are on is even more serious. So we can get we can dive into that now, some if you want, or we can come back. Yeah, let, let's let's uh, let's talk about the the science of it. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of myths, a lot of I don't know misinformation out there um, about about the science. Um, so it, sure. I think it'd be helpful if you can kind of address some of that. I mean, and, and sa- sadly, it's, sadly, it's like, you know, during COVID, well, I guess we're still in COVID, but you know, there's a lot of conflicting opinions about what COVID is, the severity. You've got some doctors saying it's no big thing, you know, others saying mm-hmm. like, you need to, mm-hmm. you know, get yourself in a bunker, you know, and, and uh, again, I'm, I'm not smart enough to know what the right answer is. I just find, 
doctors and scientists that I trust and value and say, hey, what are they saying? And they're saying, yeah, COVID's bad. Okay, great. Then I'll wear a mask and I'll get the vaccination and I'll do all that kind of stuff. So so I, I think it is important to address the science um, and, and also maybe dispel some of the myths uh, that you hear sure. about the science. Sure. So do you have particular components you want me to address here? I can just dive um, in. Well, um, be, like, so... So we're not we're not environmentalists. So I'm not even quite sure like where to where to start. So so maybe yeah. maybe uh, you know you you can address um, you know one of the, the the common the common things I hear is about um, the 1.5 degree change in global mm-hmm. temperature mm-hmm. is going to mm-hmm. cause flooding all around mm-hmm. the all around mm-hmm. the world or something mm-hmm. like that. So, so maybe yeah. maybe you can address that or start yeah. there. Right. Right. So. The uh, 2015 Paris Climate Accord uh, was both a scientific but largely a political document um, among what well over 100 nations have signed it. I can't remember. Nearly every nation in the world has signed it, 180. I can't remember. Uh, and it committed to uh, an aspirational goal of limiting climate change by the end of the century to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, and that was the aspirational limit. Uh, the more, um, the one they were all, all able to agree on was a two degree limit. Well, we've already warmed one degree of that 1.5 to two degree differential. So we're already well on our way there. And that warming that we've experienced is not a consequence of the greenhouse gases that we've released into the atmosphere over the last 20 to 30 years. Due to the lag effects that are built into our climate system, it takes the climate many decades, if not centuries, to fully adjust to the increase in CO2. So even if we were to stop emissions today, our climate would continue to change probably 100 to 200 years into the future because of these long-term lag effects. You know, one and a half degrees doesn't sound like much, but Think about the changes we've already been seeing. Uh, last year alone, there were, and, there, were, there were in the United States $145 billion worth of climate-related damage in one year. So we're seeing already extensive, magnified wildfires, droughts, floods, disruption. And it's not that, that those are going to continue increasing at the same rate as the temperature those get amplified, magnified with each increase in temperature. So it's not a linear growth, it's an exponential growth. So with every increase in temperature, we're going to be seeing um, a multiplicative effect on those various uh, Why is that the of, case? Uh, why do we know do we understand why it's amplified? Uh, simply, I think because you know we've lived in a, in a stable environment throughout human history, pretty much. And once you start destabilizing a system that has been in, in, in stasis for so long, every move away from that equilibrium contributes to an even greater amplification of, of um, diverse responses. Now, I can't get into the, the details of, you know, kind of the chaos theory and, and other components that explain that. I'm not an expert mm. in that. But it's been pretty well documented and, and anticipated. Mm. Then how about how about like, um, you know, the the critique that the climate has always changed um, yeah. or like it's natural. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure you've heard that yeah. one. Yeah, uh, sure. I'll come around to that. I, I did. I did want to mention also that the last time the last time that global temperatures were the level they are now, sea levels were 20 to 30 feet higher. And the last time that CO2 levels were as they are now sea level was about 60 feet higher. So there again, that's that kind of, we're just anticipating waiting for those to happen because of this log lag time for the climate to adjust. So, you know, historically in the climate change debate, the uh, denialists or dismissives first said uh, climate change doesn't exist. And by the way, they copied and developed what's known as the tobacco playbook, the very same strategy that was used by tobacco companies in the 1950s and 60s to say that uh, tobacco smoking was not dangerous to human health. So the the big oil companies, it's well documented in the historical records that that this is the same approach that they used. And they had two different faces. Their scientists were telling, like some mobile scientists were telling them one thing, 
And then the public face was saying something completely different. So um, they first said uh, climate change does not exist. Well, then the evidence became so overwhelming that they changed what they're saying to, well, it may exist, but we don't know why. Because if we don't know why, that really um, negates any responsibility we have, right? We don't need to feel compelled to do something. I mean, it's probably something natural. Well, now yeah. the evidence is not only that it exists and so compelling that it's human caused that the major arguments now by the denialist camp is, well, it it may be true and it may be human caused, but it's too expensive for us to address. So the argument keeps shifting through time. So we need to, we need to realize that. Yeah. So you bring up a, a common question. It's really, it, it's, it's very true that the, um, Climate has always been changing. It's been changing since, you know, the birth of this planet. And it's gone through much larger changes, not more rapid, but larger changes than what we're experiencing now. So so what's the problem? Well, that's really a red herring. The problem is this. Humans have never experienced a different environment in what we live in now. Everything we know about human civilization has developed under a very, very stable climate regime. So, so that's, that's one issue. Um, the climate has changed because of changes in solar uh, radiation, changes in the Earth's orbit, changes in the Earth's axis of tilt due to volcanic activity, many, many different um, reasons why uh, the Earth's temperature has changed. How do we know that the Earth's temperature has changed? Well, the work of scientists, right? The work of climate scientists. So why are we so readily willing to accept what they say about our historical climate and yet dismiss what those very same scientists are saying about the projected climate happening within the next 100 years? Uh, It doesn't make sense, right? (laughs) And so um, we've, we, not, not me, but climate scientists have addressed every one of those factors. And the only one, the only one, that matches what we're seeing with uh, our climate change is the accumulation of greenhouse gases. All of the other ones do not account for it. Mm. So, so that's, uh, you know, climate has always changed. Yes. But now it's changing because of us and it's changing more rapidly than it has throughout history and the consequences will be severe. Yeah. So, so my, my, my last question kind of along this, this vein of, of questioning is, is, um, you know, something that you hear a lot from, uh, my my political camp, um, the the Democrats, um, and you know that that if we don't do something about the climate, you know, basically we're all going to be doomed by like twenty thirty. Like you, yeah. you 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 see talk of this like sort of like in the Green New Deal and and other things. So so what what, what do you what, what do you make of all that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Well, 2030 certainly is uh, an important um, mile marker, right? So uh, it's not true. And and you'll see these um, alarmist headlines, sometimes attributed to scientists, but I've never heard a scientist say these that the earth is going to be destroyed by uh the year 2030 or that somehow life is going to not exist or humans will not exist there's no scientist who's saying that um <laughs> you know media might be saying that media might be saying that scientists are saying that the scientists are not saying <laughs> that. so you know we, we need to be realistic here and climate change is not going to be like falling off a cliff right all right so we want to use metaphors the horse is already out of the stable and it's over the rise. There is no bringing it back. In our lifetimes and in our kids' lifetimes and in their kids' lifetimes, we will never again experience the climate stability that we grew up with as kids. That's just not going to happen. House, the horse is out. 
But uh, that doesn't mean that we're just going to drop off a cliff at some point and everything is just going to disintegrate. It's There will be gradual but increasingly rapid changes. Everything we do now to mitigate or forestall climate change is helpful and everything we do in the future will be helpful. The problem is that the longer we delay, the more serious those consequences will be and the more difficult they will be to fix. And that's why uh, this 2030 uh, number so, keeps popping up in that. Go ahead, Josh. <clears throat> no, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So the 2030 year keeps popping up because uh, if we're going to stay under that, um, I think it was the two degree differential, uh, two degree uh, set point established in by the Paris Accord, we needed to cut our greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030. And that's a major undertaking. Uh, we're probably not going to be able to do it. Most countries are not on track to be able to do that. We're improving, things are improving, but they're not improving fast enough. So again, the longer we wait, the less we do, the greater the impact there will be on our kids and on future generations, and especially on communities of poor and disadvantaged people and racially non-white people. They experience the consequences of climate change uh, more impactfully even now than, than do uh, people that look like me. Man, that's really powerful. Um, so you you gave us these words that were so memorable. I, I tried to write them down. It's real. It's us. It's bad. It's going to get worse. Yeah. There's hope if we act now. So you've kind of talked to us about it's real, right? That, that climate mm -hmm. change is real. Um, and, and I buy that. So the question is, and I think you're starting to convince us, but help me understand how it's us and it's bad. So give me some of the consequences, severe consequences, and, and help convince me, hey, this is a human-made problem. Here's what humans did. Like, trace me from my actions, Will's actions, all of our actions, to here, now we have this issue of climate change. Climate change. Right. We are causing. Right. Okay. Right. So... Okay, I'll be very quick here, kind of climate change 101 or greenhouse effect 101. So for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the level of CO2 in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, was around 270, 280 parts per million. That's important because even though that's a very, very, very tiny fraction of our atmosphere, carbon dioxide is one of the few gases in our atmosphere that actually absorbs heat. So light from the sun comes in, hits the earth, gets re-radiated re back into space as, as warmth, as infrared radiation, and gets trapped by carbon dioxide. So as we increase CO2, that's adding more and more insulation to the earth's atmosphere. It's like wrapping another blanket around the earth. And so that's what's contributing to the warming. Um, so right now we're somewhere around 410 parts per million. So we've seen a very significant rise from the um, ancestral uh, historic, roughly 280 parts per million. It's the doubled. And how change, long has it doubled? And how, so what's the period uh, of time since, which it's doubled? So that was pre-industrial age. So, you know, okay. what is that? Mid, maybe mid 1700s or something like that. It is so gone up talking since 200 then. years or so. Yeah. And now and we if you are look at, at the chart where it's now doubled and it's accelerating. It is accelerating. So it's not a linear increase. It's it's a geometric increase. It's going up faster and faster. Um, the, the climate change denial camp uh, keeps uh, trying to say, well, look, you haven't accounted for this or this or these other factors. And, and actually, the scientific world has what the. Uh, denialists have not been able to do is explain how we could have increased CO2 and not have warmer temperatures. So they've not been able to explain how we can have nearly at least a, a 50 to 60% increase in CO2 and not get warmer. It's just, it's physics, right? It's pretty and that, that 50 physics. to 60%, that's established scientific fact. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, no you, you know, if you had the right instruments, yeah, I, yeah, I've got them in my lab. 
you if you if you spent five thousand dollars, you get one too. Yeah, yeah there, and there's yeah, there's no argument about that. <laughs> um, okay, and then the linkage to uh, to temperature uh, has uh, been done through lots of historical records, looking at how temperature and CO two were coupled in the past. How they're coupled now? What do we know about the physics of the simple physics of CO two absorption of heat and temperature? A lot of these, um, a lot of the mathematics of this were, were worked out way back in the mid eighteen hundreds before there was any understanding of climate change, and so so that's not new either. Uh, we've got scientists have, have documented over twenty six thousand indicators that the Earth is warming. So we have rising sea levels. We have warmer, warmer, warmer air, warmer water, warmer land, changes in seasons, shifts in the distribution of species, uh, the lakes that um, 26,000. Yeah, 26,000. We've got, you know, four lakes that are uh, really uh, precious to the community in which I live in. And the ice, um, ice on and ice out dates have been monitored for 150 years. And if you look at that record, there's a slow, steady decline and more increasing, increasingly more rapidly decline in the ice cover um, in the historical records here from Madison, Wisconsin. So, you know, there are you know, thousands and thousands of indicators that all align with the Earth is warming. So, OK, and then I've kind of forgot where, where the rest of your question took us, Josh. Well, it was what, and I know Will's got a question, but you know, it's about it's us. So we are producing the carbon dioxide that's warming, yes. that's creating all these other subsidiary and ancillary issues. Exactly. I forgot to mention. Yes, it's the CO two that is produced from burning of fossil fuels, right? So that is oil, gas, gas oil, all that. Oil. That's that's the issue. Yep, that's it. Right. Well, you, you know, so I have a friend who's a um, Republican, but he also did 26 years in the Navy as a captain. Um, and we were we were talking once about climate change and and uh, he had told me that it was real. And and mm-hmm. I was I was sort of shocked because, I mean, here he was. I mean, this was like a, an ardent Trump supporter, um, Republican his whole life. Um, but believe that climate change is real. And I remember asking him like, <laughs> like this is, that's kind of a weird perspective to have. And he's like, Oh, trust me. He's like, nobody in the Navy doubts for a second that right. climate change isn't right. real because right. like, yeah. like it, it affects everything, their mission, the sea levels, um, uh, you know, resources, stuff like that. Um, and, uh, and it, and it, it, it really, it really got me thinking. And, I, and I'm curious on your thoughts about, you know, do you, do you find climate denialism, you know, falls along re- certain religious or non-religious um, or political, um, yeah. you know, lines. Yeah. Like, like yeah. Um, and, and feel, feel free to speak on, on as much as, as you feel comfortable speaking on that. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, speaking of the Navy, that uh, base in uh, Norfolk, uh, Virginia, right, that's going to have mm-hmm. some real problems within the next, <laughs> you know, 20, 30, 50 years. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, uh, if you were to think of, you know, usually we align climate change denialism with with conservatism, right? Okay, and I'll come back around to that. And if you were to think of the single, singularly most conservative agency or component of the federal government, what would you what would you normally think? I'd say military, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. The top brass of the military, generals and others, have produced a number of reports saying that climate change is real, it's human cause, and it's a threat to national security, and we need to deal with it. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm fully on board with what the military is saying about mm-hmm. uh, climate change. Okay, so, um, yeah, it's really interesting when you when you look at uh, denialism or dismissiveness about climate change because it does fall out with very clearly along some uh, demographic lines. So, if I was to say uh, what demographic marker is the best indicator of climate change denialism, what would you think it would be? And by a demographic marker, I would say level of education, 
race, religion, age, uh, politics, where you live in the world, um, your social economic status, you know, all of the, all of those, what is the best predictor of climate change denialism? Most people, when I ask that in a public audience, will say education. Yeah, I would, sorry, I would what? guess white, Republican, <laughs> um, on a, a high school education. Okay, good. How about how about you, Will? Oh gosh, I I would I would say um, Republican Christian. Um, I, I'm not even throwing race race in there because I I mean there are plenty of uh, like black conservatives that that also think that climate change is a yeah. hoax. Yeah. Well, let's take education as an example because that's one that pops up regularly. Interestingly, the data show that the more that if you're a Democrat, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to align with the scientific consensus on human-caused climate change. But interestingly, if you're a Republican, the more educated you are, the less likely you are to align with um, the scientific consensus. So that's really interesting. But um, really, the best single indicator of climate change dismissiveness or denialism is political affiliation, not even political ideology. Mm. It's political affiliation. In other words, it's the party that I belong to that determines my perspective on this important issue. Not even the ideology of the party, but simply party affiliation. You mentioned religion. Um, you are right that um, cons- uh, that. Uh, White evangelicals are among the most dismissive about climate change. The sociological data show that. And so for a while, there is this perspective that religion or belief in religion or religiously conservative people uh, are bad in terms of our efforts to care for the earth and address climate change. Further sociological work showed that, no, it actually has nothing to do with their religiosity. It just so happens that evangelicals tend to be old and conservative, and those are the drivers of their perspectives on climate change, not the fact that they happen to be religious people. So it's really uh, aligned with with politics, and it comes around to something maybe we'll come, come back around to talk to, but it's... One of the big issues with addressing, uh, one of the big obstacles with addressing climate change is um, tribalism, frankly. Mm-hmm. And you, you guys deal with that with every podcast, you know, the polarization yeah. in America. And yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, I'm going to adopt the view of my people, right? And so study upon study has shown that for humans making decisions, it's more important for us to belong than to be right. Mm. It's more important for us to belong than to be right. Now, yeah, we'll that see that sense. with our kids, kids making bad decisions so they fit in with their group. But we do it all the time, right? We want to feel, we, we want to fit in with our tribe, whoever that tribe is. Yes. And we will choose fitting in over being true about really important stuff like climate change. So I'm kind of ram- rambling on here. Um, no, I want to follow it. up with anything. To yeah. Tell? Yeah. It's, you know, so <clears throat> it's our green, it's happening. We know the climate change is happening. I guess the thing I was mentioning before about how it's less divisive is it's more like everyone can acknowledge the climate's changing because things mm-hmm. change. But the question is, what does that change? And it's real, so it's happening. It's us. So it's as a result of our, uh, uh, collectively, our greenhouse gas emissions, which right. is so primarily fossil fuels, right? That's mm-hmm. it's, it's our consumption and the exhaust that comes out of the use of fossil fuels. So I got you there, and, I'm, and, and, and this is really good. 
um, it's bad and it's going to get worse. Tell me, tell us how it's bad right now. And then how, what are the models as to how it's going to get worse? Right. So, uh, you know, there is, the research has shown that there is a strong inverse correlation between people's personal experience of climate change and socioeconomic status. So I don't know what your socioeconomic status is, Josh, but on a worldwide basis, if you aren't personally experiencing climate change, it means that you are better off than most most people. Hmm. So what that what the data show is the the people who are experiencing the impacts the most are those who are poor and uh, under resourced throughout the world. So those are the ones who are uh, experiencing more prominently the consequences of amplified hurricanes, floods, droughts, etc. It's pretty clear that climate change has already contributed to civil strife and war and is magnifying those throughout Africa. We can talk about Ethiopia, talk about the Congo, uh, Sudan, drought-driven famines lead to civil strife, lead to wars. Most of those over the last 10 to 20 years have been linked uh, at least to some component of being magnified by climate change. So those are those are very serious, right? Um, think about what well, I, I was thinking Will lived in California. Apparently you don't. You're on, on the safe and secure East Coast, at least for now. But think about <laughs> what the wildfires have been doing in California. My yeah. sister-in-law uh, and her husband and family live in Santa Rosa. And they... They were within feet, and I mean feet, of losing their house during one of the last major firestorms. Now, that doesn't mean it's caused by climate change, but it's pretty clear that what climate change is doing is amplifying and magnifying a lot of these other events. So wildfires are increasing. Hurricanes are not more abundant, but they're larger, they're more impactful, and they last longer, they're more damaging. So, uh, you know, I, as Will said, I was the um, associate dean for research in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences here at Wisconsin for a number of years. Everywhere I went for six years across the nation, deans of research in ag colleges were talking about how are we going to feed a population of 9 billion people by 2050 in the face of climate change? So. Agricultural disruption is currently real, and it's going to get worse. Think about water. Uh, think about the long-term drought that the Southwest is in and the very serious, serious consequences that drought and lack of water are going to have for California and the Western states. And then with uh, the, the Himalayas, I think the Himalaya systems and the rivers that run out of the Himalayas nourish, what, one quarter to one third of the world's population? And when those glaciers are substantially gone, uh, what's going to happen, right? So, so it is bad now. If we don't think it's bad, it's because it's probably not affecting us personally. But uh, it's, it's going to get much worse. All of the models indicate that all of these things are going to become further amplified, further magnified, uh, more frequent, more abundant in time. When you, when you say, like, it doesn't affect us, like our... Um, could, I don't know, like I, I've heard it said that, that maybe COVID, you know, could have been the result of climate change, you know, maybe the, the string of strain of bird flu that's going around the globe, mm -hmm. you know, killing all these poultry or, or birds or what have you like, <laughs> like, is, is that, is that one way in which like we, we can feel, um, climate change? Yeah. Uh, and I didn't even, I Good point. I didn't even address the health consequences, uh, but major um, medical communities are now publishing uh, kind of white papers and saying that climate change is a very serious threat to human health. We can talk about the emergence of infectious diseases, and so vector-borne diseases, things like um, like malaria, tick-borne diseases, etc. Those are increasing throughout the world. Malaria is definitely making a comeback, and part of that is climate-related. If you think about 
the tropics where malaria has been a problem historically, many of the major cities were built at elevations just slightly above kind of the normal range of mosquitoes throughout the tropical regions. Well, now the mosquitoes' ranges are drifting, moving upward in altitude, and they're adapting, expanding their ranges as well. So the emergence of new serious infectious diseases coupled to climate change is, is a very, very real problem. And then there's just the, the straight-up impacts of warming itself, especially in large metropolitan areas. You know, a few years ago, Chicago had a massive heat wave, but think about what happens in New Delhi or Bangladesh or other places when they have massive extended heat waves. And this is, I just read recently, developing in Pakistan. Um, so just the direct effects of heat can be significant uh, itself. So the, the thing about climate change is that it's a threat multiplier and it's a threat magnifier. You know, it, people are not going to be dying of a 1.5 degree change in temperature, right? That's, yeah. But it it multiplies other problems. And so if we have climate change, it's then bringing on consequences for food production, for national security, for our infrastructure, right? And then it magnifies those. It's making our storms worse. It's making them more abundant. It's making our fire, uh, wildfires much more, uh, much more dangerous, much more impactful than they had been historically. Man, that's, that's um, it's sobering. It's uh, very sobering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess. So, so one of the things that obviously that we hold on to all three of us on this call is that um, we have hope and we have hope mm -hmm. in eternal life. We have hope in Christ. We have hope in the future is not, though it may look very dismal is not hopeless. And we believe that God will create a new heavens and new earth Yes, my 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 question is that um, what what is our hope right now? What can we do, mm -hmm. and how does this integrate again into your? How does your theology of where this is all ending up maybe yeah. integrate into where you are right now, and how do you, how you uh, give a message of hope right. amidst all this uh, dis disturbing data? Yeah, it's really important to not just leave where leave the discussion at the point where we've arrived to now. Um, because despair can be paralyzing and despair is as destructive to our future as is denial, right? So we need to have hope uh, and there's reason for hope. There are a number of really good reasons to be hopeful about the future. One is we know what the problem is and we know how to fix it. I mean, isn't that great news? What, what if we didn't really know what was was causing this, or if there was if it was beyond our ability to to fix? That would be bad news. But no, it's good news. We know what the problem is. We know how to fix it. There have been multiple roadmaps, sophisticated roadmaps developed as to how to get from here to there, how to meet those Paris uh, Climate Accord objectives. And so we know not only what's causing it, we know how to fix it, and we know how to get there. And so those are all great reasons for hope. Uh, I'll uh, refer you to one website in particular. It's if you were to go on Google and type in drawdown.org. It's Project Drawdown, and they are the world's leading uh, provider of climate change solutions across virtually every sector of society that you can imagine education, health, infrastructure, agriculture, you name it. And it's its extraordinary. We've got solutions. So we know what the problem is. We know how to fix it. We simply lack the political and personal will to do so. That's what's sobering. Mm. Somehow we have to get over that hurdle. And that's for me, uh, as, as both a Christian and as a scientist, where I can sometimes experience very significant discouragement and, and frustration. I'm yeah. reminded uh, of two things, though. Um, one, uh, there is this, in the psychological literature, there is hope theory. And what hope theory says we need to be hopeful people, and that's very important for our psyches, is we need 
uh, to have a vision of a better future. We need to have a path toward that vision, and we need to have agency in executing that vision. So we need to have a vision, we need to see a path, and we need to have agency. We've got all of those with respect to these issues, right? The one that's, that, that we're, is hampering us now is that of agency. We just don't have enough people on board. I'm also reminded of uh, St. Augustine, who in the 400s is attributed with saying, Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger to see things as they are, and courage to see that they don't remain as they are. So when I think about hope in the context of climate change, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm furious, and hopefully I'm also courageous that, okay, they don't have to stay as they are, we can do something about it. So I kind of hold those in tension. I don't see hope as this kind of airy-fairy optimism, this Pollyannish idea that somehow everything is just going to work, work out okay, because it's not. But uh, we, can, we can engage act in activities to, you know, to bring into effect uh, that vision of the future that we hold. Richard Buckham is a theologian who's addressed this uh, issue of hope with respect to environmental problems. And he writes about proximate hope and ultimate hope. Proximate hope is what we do now toward the betterment of our earth and humanity now. Proximate hope is always uncertain and uh, you know, it needs to be reasonably based and, and um, thoughtfully pursued, but the outcomes are not guaranteed. And then, but that's what we do as believers, right? We engage in all kinds of things where we don't have a guaranteed outcome. You know, we, we try to address the needs of those who are poor in our community. We try to do, uh, you know, whatever we can do to make this a better world, to help people to flourish. But those are not guaranteed. And then, as you alluded to, Josh, uh, Christians believe that at some point uh, an end time will come and the earth uh, will be restored. Uh, and that's the ultimate hope. So, yes, uh, as, as believers, we can anticipate and look forward to that day. I don't think that gives us an excuse for not doing something now for multiple reasons. One is the earth doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. It exists for his praise and his glory. And we've been charged to take care of it. And secondly, we've been charged to care for those who are poor and under-resourced around us, and we cannot do so without caring for their climate. So, uh, you know, we can't just wait for, uh, for the ultimate uh, restoration of all things. That's awesome. Yeah, on, on this program, um, I'm, Josh and I really like to say, you know, that a preach. And I would say, like, what you just said, that a preach. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, but uh, so one one last question, just um, kind of staying in that that same thinking about hope is like what what can you know average everyday people do? And we'll, we'll you know even though we've got a diverse and global audience, but like we'll we'll, we'll just keep it to America. So like what what can Americans do to? I don't know, like, like help. I mean, I've I've heard it said a couple different ways. One, like, it's not really like me putting a soda can into the recycling bin probably isn't going to change much, but me right. electing people in office that right. care about these things, you know, would do, um, um, would have a much significant impact, much greater significant right. impact. So like, so what, right. What, right. What, what are your thoughts? Right. Great question. Um, we and my family and I have done progressively more and more, for the last 20 to 30 years because of our concern about lowering our um, climate footprint, uh, lowering our ecological footprint, you know, things like insulating our house, buying high, high efficiency uh, appliances, driving less, uh, biking, all kinds of stuff. We recently invested in a $13,000 heat pump furnace uh, system so that we can uh, be uh, consume less natural gas in heating our house and less electricity in cooling our house. $13,000. And then I'm going to say that none of any, none of what we've done will have any impact whatsoever on climate. Right. 
So we're fully aware of that. Why do we do it? We do it because we feel it's the morally right thing to do. We do it because it serves as a model and an example. And even though one person's efforts are not going to have any impact whatsoever, aggregated efforts, influenced and empowered, uh, impelled by examples will have an impact. And um, because I'm, I'm confident that, uh, you know, these are small steps that hopefully in aggregate can have an impact in the future. So, so small steps, yes, individually are not going to have an impact, but collectively they can. That said, we need to be really careful here about pushing the responsibility onto individuals. And I know this is a political debate as well. The left wants to say we need systemic government control and the right wants to say, no, we need to leave it up to individuals. Well, that is a faulty argument. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's a choice between two options and you don't need to choose either or. In fact, we need to choose both. We need both systemic action and we need personal responsibility. But we will never get there relying only on the personal goodwill of individuals. Think about I'm old enough, you guys may not be, I'm old enough to remember that in the 1960s and early 70s, rivers were catching on fire. We had terrible water pollution, bad air pollution. We had acid rain. We had all kinds of very significant environmental problems. Republicans and Democrats came together with bipartisan agreements and passed a number of major, major federal laws. And a number of these issues were largely cleared up. Now, they're not necessarily gone, but there have been many, many serious environmental problems that are way less serious today, and some that will likely uh, go away, like um, the ozone hole and issues about that. If you think about all of this environmental improvement, how much of it has come without federal legislation? Zero. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Zero. So this idea that uh, we, we, you know, okay, climate change is serious and we need to do something about it, but let's leave it up to the goodwill of the people. We don't want government overreach. We don't want government uh, involvement. Uh, you know, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay, so we need, we need both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we need both. Uh, okay. So take it from there. Where do, where do uh, you want to go? <laughs> uh, well, I was, I was going to say, you know, so we, we didn't really talk about it much, but you know, a lot of people forget that, you know, that the EPA became a department of our government, you know, signed under a Republican um, president. Um, yeah, president. So mm -hmm. and yeah. Uh, it's it's weird how, you know, sort of things have changed over time and shifted. And we, we, we we've discussed this on on a number of different pol um, number of different shows about just sort of the shifting influence and uh, matters of importance for each political party. But um but um, Rick, just thank you, thank you so much for coming on the show to uh, chat with us. This was a this was a, a fun conversation. I'm really glad that that we had a chance to speak with you. Well, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on. Uh, I do want to say quickly one more thing. I did not actually give examples of what people can do, but there are all kinds of websites that will help you to do yeah. so. Simply go on and Google something like. 50 things I can do to slow climate change. And there are all kinds of, of opportunities will pop up. And I want to thank you guys for addressing. This is an extremely important uh, topic. I, of course, um, am very concerned about it, but uh, whether or not uh, we like it, it will be impacting all of our lives very seriously in, in the coming future. So I appreciate the fact that you guys are taking this on and uh, doing it in a very respectful uh, and politically divergent way so so thanks yeah. for your efforts thank thank you yeah we, yes, we really enjoy, enjoy doing that and i i, I should I, i'd be remiss if i didn't ask josh this question kind of put him on the spot because you know josh comes to us as the token republican conservative um you know climate change is a hoax kind of thing i'm just joking but but maybe i don't know like so so so, so josh uh, did did rick manage to shift your your view about the climate um any during our conversation Oh yeah, definitely. No, it was really good. Really good to hear someone talk about it. Who knows what they're talking about and has belief, you yeah. know? 
So that's, that's the thing. I'm really glad to hear that, Josh. And thank you. Yeah. Um, something that us in science need to remind ourselves of and people in science communication have learned but need to remind themselves of is the problem with science denialism is not an information deficit. It's mm. a trust deficit. That's really mm. good. And you just said that, Josh. Mm. You didn't need more information. You needed somebody that you res could respect and trust. And all of a sudden, that's opened your mind. <laughs> and so, you know, there is no one bit of information that is going to change the opinion of any climate change dismissive or denialist. What we need is to build trust and to build uh, share, you know, across shared values, across shared ideologies of shared, share, shared worldviews. And that's, I think, the best opportunity for Path Forward. It's so good. Wow. Well, on, on that note, thanks again, Rick, for everything. And uh, thank you for our listeners and viewers. And uh, we will speak to you all next week. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.